Well, this morning we're going to continue our series that we're doing in the Gospel of Luke. And so if you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 14. If you don't, we will have the verses coming up on the screen throughout the sermon here. Um, But I titled our message this morning, Counting the Cost, Part 2. There was a message already done earlier in this series where Jesus kind of talked about the cost of being one of his disciples. And he's going to get back into that topic this morning. So this is Counting the Cost, Part 2. When I was a child growing up, my family and I would take a lot of our vacations down to Baja, California, down to Mexico, And we would go camping in a place called San Felipe. And I loved to do that. It's beautiful right on the beach there. And um, it seemed like down in San Felipe, it seemed like time just kind of slowed down. And so those are really fond memories. And when we would drive down to Mexico, um, my dad had one of those old campers that sits in the back of the truck. And if you've seen those, the front of the camper kind of goes over the cab of the truck and sticks out over the hood a little bit. And me and my siblings would sit up And that was the master bed, by the way, in the camper. We would sit up there and lay on the bed, and we would stare out the windows as we were driving down to Mexico. And we always knew when we got to Mexico, because the stop signs would look the same, but they wouldn't say stop anymore. They would say Alto instead. And so we'd be up there, and we'd be like, oh, we're in Mexico now, because we see Alto. And we always thought it was funny, too, because for whatever reason, my dad would run stop signs in Mexico. Like he had no problem in America, just stopping at these red octagons. But for some reason in Mexico, he would just blow through stop sign after stop sign. And I can't attribute that to the fact that it said Alto. My dad's bilingual. He knows Spanish. But I don't know why he would just blow through these. So he'd have these young kids sitting up in the camper and we'd be watching and we have the aerial view and we'd come up to an intersection and all the other cars would be stopped and my dad would just be barreling through in his truck with a camper And all these little kids are up there screaming, Alto, Alto, Alto. And he wouldn't stop. And thank God we never hit anybody. But one of the other things that always uh, made me aware that I was in Mexico, one of the sights that you would see across the landscape, is that there were so many buildings and houses that were left incomplete. What I mean by that is somebody would have started these projects and you would see these structures, but there were no windows or doors and these maybe no roof on top. There were just tons and tons of these properties scattering the landscape as we would drive down to Mexico and they were abandoned halfway through the construction process and never completed. And when I say that these were everywhere, I mean everywhere along the road. They were just these incomplete properties that people had worked on. And to be honest with you, they were sort of eyesores to see as you were driving down through Mexico. And I remember even as a kid asking myself, who would begin a building project like that without knowing that they had the resources to bring it to completion? Well, obviously, many people would and did. And the reason I bring that up this morning is because Jesus is actually going to use that very illustration along with another illustration to talk to us about the importance of counting the cost when choosing to be his disciple. In Luke 14 here, Jesus is going to offer a warning to those who would start out on the journey of following him without first counting the cost to make sure that they have the resources to carry this journey to the finish line. Because just as a building project that got underway and stopped short of completion is an eyesore to the entire neighborhood. 
So too is a professing Christian who falls away and plays the hypocrite an eyesore to the entire Christian community. Well, with that said, let's read our passage together. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. And if you've come to Apostles for a while, you know what I'm going to ask you to do. Would you mind standing to your feet as we give honor to God's word and read it? So please follow along with me. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear Let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So much for a feel-good message this morning, right? I mean, these are hard words of Jesus, are they not? Sometimes you read things like this and you think to yourself, somebody needs to get this guy a book on church growth. I mean, what is Jesus thinking here? It's incredible. Jesus has... Some difficult words for us. The great physician has a hard pill for us to swallow this morning. But that's okay. Because you know what? If chemo is what I need to survive, I don't want my doctor to give me penicillin. And Jesus is loving enough that he'll never mince words. Jesus will never pull punches. No, Jesus will be truthful even if the truth hurts. And guess what, friends? Sometimes the truth hurts. But I want you to notice with me the timing of these difficult words in verse 25. We read there, now great crowds accompanied him. Again, it's like, wait, 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 Jesus, what are you doing? Why would you now say such harsh or difficult things? Your popularity is skyrocketing. The people love you. The masses are coming after you. And now you're speaking like this to them. Why would he say that? I mean, wasn't it good enough that people were excited and that people were following after him? Evidently not. See, Jesus isn't looking for crowds, only converts. For Jesus, it was important that he intentionally thinned out the crowd. Now, that's not because Jesus didn't love people. That's not because Jesus didn't want many followers. That's not because Jesus didn't want to pack out heaven with people 
who loved God. Now the reason that Jesus intentionally thinned out the crowds was because Jesus knew that shallow, half-hearted, misinformed followers wouldn't make it in the long run anyway. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, Our Lord rejoiced over one sinner that repented, but 10,000 sinners who merely professed to have repented would have given him no joy whatsoever. Jesus is primarily concerned with quantity, or I'm sorry, with quality, not quantity. With quality, not quantity. That's why here at Apostles Church, you'll hear us say from time to time that our focus is not on building a big church. Our focus is on building big people. People who grow deep roots in their faith. People who are really established in their faith. People who are really falling in love with Jesus because that's what God's concerned about. It's not about crowds that show up and are excited for a moment. No, 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 no. It's about converts who have had their, their hearts transformed by the grace of God and who want to know Jesus and make him known. You know, in life, oftentimes less is more. When you think about the military, a special forces unit can be much more devastating than a much larger force of regular troops. Or think about the world of sports. I've honestly played on sports teams throughout my life where we were better with certain players sitting on the bench, even if that made us shorthanded. Because having some players on the field, they actually brought down the team. They actually hurt the team. So sometimes in life, yes, less is more. And when it comes to the Christian faith, evidently for Jesus, it's better to have fewer who are legitimately committed than many who are nominally committed. Now, Jesus in the text is using two different illustrations. Um, the building of the tower and the king who has war on his doorstep. He's using both of these illustrations to drive home one main point. And this is the point. Anyone who is interested in following after King Jesus needs to count the cost. First, we have the man building a tower. Basically, Jesus is teaching us that only a fool would dive into an expensive, costly, time-consuming building project without first, before he ever gets started, sitting down and making sure he has the resources to complete it. Otherwise, if he fails to do that and he only gets halfway done, like all these projects in Mexico that I described earlier, it invites ridicule and it becomes an eyesore in the community. A couple weeks ago, my family and I were in Portland, and a family up there invited us to go on a boat, on their boat, on this beautiful river uh, up near Portland. And we were on the river, and there's all these beautiful homes lining the river. And we're just taking it all in, and we started getting up to this one turn in the river. And they actually wanted to warn us ahead of time. They said, there is this house that you're going to see that it was 40,000 square feet, this massive mansion. Uh, built by an entrepreneur 20 years ago. And they, they just said, but we've got to warn you, it's a total eyesore because this thing is not finished. And we said, well, why didn't they finish it? And he said, well, they started building it and evidently on the, on the beach in front of his property, he was importing all this sand and rocks and different things to kind of build out his beach, but he never got permission. So the organization that's in charge of the rivers there came to him and said, you got to remove all this stuff. And so rather than removing it, he said, if you guys are going to try to treat me that way, then I'm going to leave this property incomplete 
and never let anybody take it over. So he still owns it 20 years later, but it's got tagging all over it. It's just this big hollow shell that's taking up this beautiful, pristine uh, riverfront. And it was, and, and this, this couple, it seemed like they were so embarrassed because their whole river is so beautiful, but that one property. So again, they had to tell us and warn us, you're going to see this coming up. And again, Jesus is, he's pointing out that idea that if, if you build half of a project, it's going to invite ridicule and it's going to bring embarrassment and shame and bring down the value of these other properties. And so he says, you need, you need to make sure before you get started that you have the resources to complete the job. His other illustration, though, is this king under attack. And he points out that it's not easy for an army of 10,000 to come against an army of 20,000. And so he says, look, this king is under attack and there's the greater force coming to him. And he has to actually sit down and say, man, can I, with only 10,000 troops, actually resist this bigger army with 20,000 troops? And if he can't, then he needs to go out and try to sue for peace. Now, although both illustrations make the same point to count the cost, they do look at things from a slightly different angle. In the first, the man is free to build or not build the tower. So basically, Jesus is teaching us that we need to sit down and ask ourselves if we can afford to follow him. Do I have the resources to follow him? But notice how in the second illustration, the king is invaded and he has to deal with the situation. In other words, what Jesus is saying to us here is he's saying we have to sit down and ask ourselves if we can afford to refuse his demands. Because Jesus is demanding something of every person on earth. We're, we need to submit to him as Lord. And he's saying, you need to sit down and evaluate whether you can afford to refuse my demands in your life. And both of these are important ways for us this morning to look at the cost of discipleship. Yes, the cost of being a disciple is high, but guess what? The cost of walking away from Jesus is even higher. Jesus is clear with us this morning. He wants every man, woman, and child who is interested in following him to sit down and make sure that they know what they, they're getting themselves into and make sure that they're able to do what is required. I think the great tragedy is that there are many people who will spend hours upon hours of study and consideration of planning and proposing, of research and reevaluation and second and third opinions on a business plan before they ever go out and launch that venture. And yet so many people will approach their eternal investments, approach, approach the kingdom of God and their eternal happiness and interests and make a decision on a whim. Jesus would not have that for us. Jesus knows that this decision of whether or not you follow him is way too important for you just to wing it and make a decision on a whim. So he wants us to sit down and count the cost. I remember when I came to Christ some 14 years ago now, I was a college student, and I remember sitting back and thinking to myself for over a year about whether or not I was willing to bear the cost of following Christ because I knew it would cost me something. I knew that for me, it would mean that I have to stop using drugs and drinking and partying with my friends. I knew that I need to stop hanging out with that group of people. I knew it would completely change my work relationships. I knew, I knew that it would require an overhaul of my vocabulary. 
I knew it would mean mockery from other people. I knew it would mean that I had to take a stand with my family, a stand in my workplace, a stand at my university. I knew it would mean being labeled a Jesus freak. And I knew I would have to break up with a girl that I had been dating seriously for three years at that point. And so knowing these things, I truly had to sit for over a year and ask myself, Daniel, can you make those sacrifices? Daniel, are you willing to endure that cost? Are you willing to give up these things? Are you willing and able to bear Christ's reproach? Daniel, are you willing to surrender everything to King Jesus? Every one of us has to count the cost. So what is the cost? I can picture because we've got some solid Christians in this room this morning. I can picture some of you saying, Pastor, be careful. There is no cost to following Jesus. Salvation is free dollars. <laughs> and you're right. You're absolutely right. Listen, salvation is free. It does not cost us anything. It is a gift of God and all we do is receive it. So we don't pay to get salvation, but listen to me. There is a cost to having it. It's sort of like if you were to inherit a home. And if anybody in here has a home that they want to just give away to anybody, I would love to inherit that. You can even adopt me. But if you inherited a home, guess what? You didn't pay anything for it. It was given to you as a gift. And although that's true, there is going to be costs now that you will incur for the maintenance and the upkeep of that property. And it's sort of like that in your Christian experience. You don't pay a penny. You don't owe anything to earn God's favor. It's a gift of His grace. But guess what? There is a cost to be somebody who has received that grace. There is a calling on your life. And there are requirements in order for you to live faithfully as a Christian. So we don't purchase salvation. It's God's gift to us. But if we are to receive it, it comes with a whole set of costs. And what are those costs to following Jesus? Well, there's several here in the text. First, God requires your love. Look at verse 26 again. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let's take a vote this morning. Um, does that verse sound Christian or non-Christian? What Jesus has said there. If that sounds really Christian to you, raise your hand. Not so much, huh? One hand in the entire room. If anyone does not hate their father, mother, spouse, brother, sister, children, you can't be my disciple. That, that sounds almost anti-Christian, right? What does Jesus mean when he says, if we don't hate these people in our family, then we can't be his disciple? Church, I need you to track with me this morning. You've got to stay with me for the next 60 seconds because the last thing we need is for you to leave church this morning and your spouse or your mother or your other relative says, what did you learn at church today? And you look at them and say, I hate you. <laughs> that would not be good application for us this morning. What, is, what does Jesus mean here when he says this? Well, he certainly doesn't mean that we should feel literal hatred for our families. To hate our parents would contradict the fifth commandment. In fact, Jesus even commands his own followers to love our enemies. So he certainly doesn't mean to hate people. 
What is he commanding us then? Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe explains it well. He says this, The word hate does not suggest positive antagonism, but rather to love less. He writes, we see examples of the word hate, meaning to love less, in places like Genesis 29, 30 and 31, where we read, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, but notice that there meant that Rachel was loved more, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So what Jesus is saying is that our love for Christ must supersede our love for anyone or anything else. Yes, even your family. Jesus says it similarly in Matthew 10, 37. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So Jesus is calling us here not to hate, actually, but to love him supremely, to love him more than anyone and everyone else in our lives. And how many Christians throughout church history have had to endure conflict even in their own households because they've chosen to follow the Lord Jesus? How many spouses have been despised by their spouse because they decided to follow Jesus? How many parents have suffered disrespect and misunderstanding from their children because they've decided that they would follow Jesus? And their kids say, oh, you're old-fashioned or you're narrow-minded or you're unenlightened. Church, how many children have been disowned by their parents throughout church history because of their conversion to Christianity? How many siblings have been mocked and ridiculed by brothers and sisters who have not chosen to follow Jesus because of their choice to be a Christian? God demands our love and loyalty and obedience this morning over all earthly relationships, even our families. So all of us have to ask ourselves, am I a true disciple? Is Jesus first and foremost in my affections? Are you this morning living for Christ in your family, in your extended family, regardless of the consequences? Well, next we see that God requires your very life. So he requires your love. He also requires your life. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, again, cannot be my disciple. Now there's two parts to this. The first part is, Bearing your cross, which is to die to yourself. And then the second part to it is to come after him, which is to live for Christ. And so part of what it means to be a true disciple is that you have died to your own ambitions, died to your own life. You've put those things to death and instead now you are living for Christ and following after his way of life. Friends, to take up your cross is the ultimate Self-denial means to consider yourself dead. Dead to your own life path, your own plans and goals and purposes. Make no mistake about it, when people heard Jesus saying this in first century Palestine under Roman occupation, they knew that when Jesus was calling them to bear a cross, they knew that meant one thing. It meant death. Because these people had seen many people have to bear their own cross. Whenever they saw 
a person dragging across through their community, surrounded by a band of Roman soldiers, they knew that person had a one-way ticket. They knew that person wasn't coming back. And so what Jesus is saying when he uses that metaphor of picking up a cross and bearing it for the Christian life, is he is saying, if you're going to follow me, I am calling you to be all in. It's a one-way ticket. It's a death sentence of sorts. A death to your, again, your own ambitions and pursuit. Death to maybe the way that you would naturally want to live your life because Jesus is calling you to live life the way you were designed to live it. To live life in Him. Being all in. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 we read, I love this verse. This would be a good memory verse, church. You are not your own. Doesn't that cut against everything you naturally feel? Yes, I am my own. I'm I'm the captain of my own ship. You are not your own. Why? Because you were bought with a price. Jesus purchased you. He paid the ticket for your sins. So you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, the calling on your life is to glorify God in your body. Church, Jesus is calling us to a lifetime of self Denial, where you and I, when you and I experience a death of self and we let Christ live in and through our very lives. And it's concerning when you look at the landscape of American Christianity because you have to ask yourself, right, church? I mean, let's be honest this morning. You have to ask yourself, how many people are filling our churches today who have never experienced Anything like this death of self that we're talking about. How many in the church are not living the way Christ lived? Where Jesus is saying, follow after me. Take up your cross, follow after me. How many claim to have come to Christ and yet have never experienced the slightest change in their life's plans? Haven't endured even an ounce of Christ's Shame haven't fought and wrestled with temptation for even a moment. They just yield to it over and over again and think, no big deal. It's about grace, right? I'm saved by grace. Friends, Christ is calling us to a different form of life. If the master of the house was abandoned and abused and hung on a cross, what can the servants of his house expect? I mean, shouldn't we expect to endure at least a degree of what he endured. The Apostle Paul captured the essence of this idea in Galatians 2.20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. There's the, there's the death to self. And he said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul was dead to himself, and now the life of Christ was what consumed him. Romans 12.1 offers us insight into what this actually looks like. Here Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Jesus is demanding our very lives. And finally, to be a disciple of Christ, God requires, get this, your loyalty. It's not just a flash in the pan where you make an impulsive decision, but no, Jesus is calling us to a lifetime of loyalty. In verse 33, Jesus says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, again, for the third time, 
cannot be my disciple. Jesus is demanding a total surrender of everything in our lives, our hearts, right? He needs to be the object of our love. Our very life, he needs to be the object of our decision-making, but now he's even calling a, a total relinquishing of our possessions, anything and everything. We need to be willing to surrender to Jesus. Your relationships, your career, your money, your possessions, your time, your energy, your mind, your body, everything. Jesus is calling for total loyalty and obedience. Some of you are like, dang, (laughs) I didn't sign up for all that. If you're a Christian here today, guess what? You did sign up for all that. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we walk away from everything in our lives. Say, well, guess I'm going to tell the boss in the morning I'm done. Quitting that. Going to sell my house. And, uh, well, guess since Jesus wants my life, I'm just going to go kill myself. That's clearly not what he's teaching us. We don't abandon our families, sell all of our possessions, quit our jobs. What Jesus is getting at, though, is that you and I need to be willing to sacrifice anything and everything if that's what's required of us in our service to God. And listen, that might not be required of you throughout your earthly life. But make no mistake about it, if you study the history of Christianity, that has been asked of and required from many followers of Jesus. And therefore, our ultimate loyalty can lie with nothing in our lives. If the question becomes, my relationship with Jesus, or that thing, you and I have to honestly be able to say, I'm going with Jesus. I'm choosing Jesus. So we should ask ourselves this morning, is there anything in my life that I have a death grip on right now? I mean, is there something in your life, it could be a dream that you would never let go of. It could be your spouse or a relationship. It could be your children. It could be your home. It could be something that you have an absolute death grip on. Where you would say, I can't give this up. I would never, if God's asking for that in my life, no. We need to ask ourselves, am I in a place like that in my life? Because if we are, if we have a death grip on something, one of two things is going to happen. Either Jesus is going to change our heart, help us to see, listen, you're better off if you hold on to me with a death grip than that thing. So either he's going to change your heart and he's going to pry your hands open which is going to hurt, so it's better just to do it yourself. So to pry your hands open, he's going to help you to attach your hands to him, or you're going to hold on to that thing forever and never truly take hold of Jesus. Those are the only two options. But I'm so thankful that Jesus loves us enough that even when it hurts, he comes into our lives and he'll break our grip off of those things that we're holding on to so tightly. Because friends, there are times when being faithful to Christ could cost you your job. And by extension, your possessions, your home, your your sense of security and well-being, that that can happen and it does happen to people. Friends, there are places in the world right now that there are Christians following Jesus 
and actually is costing them prison time or even worse. And so again, the question that Jesus is forcing in on our hearts, and it's so hard for us to even compute with these things because we live in America, but Jesus is saying, am I the most important thing to you? Because if not, you cannot be my disciple. I think all of us need to ask ourselves, if God opened up a door of opportunity for me and my family to serve him somewhere else, and it required me to let go of most of what my life consists of now, would I be able to do that? And if your answer is no, you need a heart check this morning. Church, the Christian mindset is this. Anything, anytime, anywhere, Lord. Anything, anytime, anywhere, Lord. That's what total surrender to Jesus looks like. Whatever you want, anything, Jesus. Whenever you want it, anytime, Jesus. And wherever it's required, anywhere, Jesus. I am down. I am willing. I am your servant. You are the Lord. You are the master. I am the servant. Can we all agree this morning that the cost of following Jesus is high? It's high. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's definitely not for those who desire comfort and ease and fear conflict. And Jesus wants us to know this up front. Again, some of us are like, shh, pastor, look around. We're trying to grow this church. We don't want to thin this thing out. What are you doing? But church, I'm just doing what Jesus was doing. Because listen, this morning, it's better for someone who's in our church today and who's considering whether or not they want to follow Jesus to hear the truth about what it costs to follow him. Even if that means that they hear these difficult words and they turn away. That's better, listen, than for somebody to be in our church and to start taking their first steps down the narrow path that leads to life and then find it difficult and bail out at the first off-ramp. It's better for them to hear the truth of the gospel and the, the truth of what Jesus is calling us to and just say no up front than for us to give them some half-truth to try to get them in the church and then they start following along and then they realize what Jesus is really asking of them. They go, hey, I'm done with this. And they walk away. In fact, this is what Jesus is getting at in our last two verses. After explaining the cost of discipleship to us, Jesus concludes here by telling us what happens to people who failed to count the cost before following him. Look again at verse 34. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is not that you heard the truth of the gospel and rejected it. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is that you heard half the gospel and accepted it and then found the other half to be too difficult and walked away. Jesus says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Answer, it can't. He says it's just thrown away. And the reason for that is because there is no more difficult person to reach with the gospel than the person who persevered in the church for a while only to turn their back on Christ and walk away. Because that person knows just enough of the Bible to be dangerous. 
When you try to talk to them, that kind of person thinks that they know it all. They don't need you to share anything about the gospel. Oh, I've I've heard that. I know that kind of stuff. That kind of person is the type that, as you try to share the truth with them, they take scriptures and they quote them, but they usually quote them out of context just to shut you up and change the subject. Listen, friend, there's nobody more difficult to reach than that person. The person who's, again, been in the church for a little bit, bought into it a little bit, and yet now they've walked away. So as we bring things to a close now, we need to make no mistake about it. There is a cost to following Jesus. And it's a heavy one. That's why Jesus told us that the way that leads to life is narrow and difficult. And so friends, don't be surprised when it is. He warned us. But here's the key. Anybody ready for some good news? No? Okay, I mean, we could just close the Bible here. Anybody ready for good news? I mean, can we, can we at least tie a bow on this at the end here and make this kind of beautiful and pretty? Here's the key. Jesus never promised us that the Christian life would be easy, but he did promise us that it would be worth it. He never promised that it would be easy, but he did promise that it would be worth it. And aren't there many things in life that are difficult, but they're actually worth it? I mean, talk to somebody who has a great marriage that's, that's gone on for decades. Say, man, that must have been easy. <laughs> They'll laugh at you. Having a great marriage is a lot of work. It's difficult. Many trials through that, but guess what? The payoff in those sunset years of your life where you're surrounded by grandkids over at your house, it's worth it. Anybody you talk to that's persevered through all the trials early on in their marriage and made it through all of that in the long haul, they look back and they say it was worth it. It was worth it. Having a great marriage is difficult, but it's worth it. Having a healthy body, amen, church, it's difficult, right? We have to say no to the fried foods. We have to say no to the ice cream. We have to say no to all the things that we want, the sugar, right? And at night, you're craving it so bad. Can I confess something to you? I got so motivated yesterday. I said, I'm going I'm to I'm eat well today. I'm going to do it. And I worked out yesterday. Everybody applaud for your pastor. I worked out yesterday. I got home last night and I was already hungry, but I had already had dinner. And I said to myself, I am not going to go into the freezer and get one of those little like mochi things. Is that how you say it? Mochi desserts. But my wife just bought them from Trader Joe's and they're strawberry and that's my weakness. And I said, I'm not going to do it. And I had this super strong temptation. And I was like, I'm going to go take a shower, (laughs) right? Feeling tempted. I'm just going to go get in the shower, change my thinking right now. And I came out of the shower and I went straight to the freezer and I got that little strawberry mochi out and I ate all of it. I ate all of it and I don't even feel bad about it today. I don't. But it's hard, right? To have, to have a healthy body is hard. You have to exercise. You have to say no to the things that you want. But isn't it worth it? Right? Isn't every doctor in America going to tell you it's worth it? You got to do this. You got to not smoke. You got to eat right. You gotta... It's worth it. it. Gives you health in those later years of life. What about a great retirement? All the young adults in here today, right? The smart financial planners and maybe your parents or grandparents look at you when you're in your 20s and 30s and like, start a 401k now. If you just put little bits in it now, I swear it'll multiply. When you're my age, you'll be taken care of. And we're like, okay, that sounds good, but I want all my money for me right now. 
right? And we say, well, someday when I make it more, I'll start putting it away and someday it becomes never. And, but I'll tell you what, it's hard to make those little decisions. But again, talk to anybody who's there at that point in life and they say, you know what? Sacrificing the little bit early on, it's worth it. The reward is great to be in your 70s and 80s and just be able to have your needs met. Friends, there are many things in life that are difficult, but they're worth it. And nothing more than following Jesus. Because guess what? The ultimate payoff, the ultimate reward is so worth it. It's eternity in the presence of God where there are no more tears, where there is no more pain, when everything that is wrong in our world right now is actually made right. But not only that, I don't want you to think that the Christian life here and now is just all difficult. It is difficult in the ways that we've talked about today, but it's not all difficult. It's actually, even in the here and now, the best way to live your life. Listen to these other words from Jesus and we'll close. And I want you to just set this statement alongside of everything we've talked about today. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, which is a way of saying in that culture, be my disciple and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. Now, wasn't he just saying it's hard like everything we just talked about today? But now Jesus is saying my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Okay, time out real quick. What's going on here? Is Jesus contradicting himself? If you want to be my disciple, it's going to be really, 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 really hard. If you want to be my disciple, it's going to be super easy. Is he contradicting himself? Is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? No, of course not. Here's here's the issue. There are difficulties in in following Jesus like we've talked about today. It is hard to resist temptation. It is hard to surrender your rights. It is hard to love unlovable people. It is hard to suffer persecution and rejection. But, in the things that really matter in life, there is ease. There is rest. There is peace. Notice that Jesus is the only teacher in all the world who can give rest to your soul. No matter what else you accumulate, achieve, accomplish in your life, no matter who else you follow, what other teacher you follow, your soul, apart from Jesus, will always experience unrest. Because the only thing that can bring rest to your soul is you being in right relationship with God. And the only way to do that is through God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus can give you rest to your soul Jesus can give you a clean, clear conscience because he removes that burden of guilt that all of us feel for the wrong things we've done. Jesus can take all of that away because of what he did 2,000 years ago. You and I, through our sin, have separated ourselves from God. But Jesus, through his life and his death, defeated sin. And now by faith, we can be forgiven of our sins And we can have our relationship with God the Father restored. And we can begin to live life the way it was intended to be lived. The life that Jesus lived. Where we live in right relationship with God. And we live in right relationship with man. So the question here this morning. 
is why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want that? I imagine that in our church, there's probably some here who have been coming for a while and you've been counting the cost. What is it going to take to follow Jesus? Maybe you're kind of like I was. I sat and thought about these things for over a year and asked myself, am I willing to actually make Jesus first? And maybe some of you are in that place this morning. Again, my question I'll close with is, why wouldn't you want Jesus here today? And so we're going to close in prayer now. And I want to give an opportunity for anyone here who has yet to put their faith in Jesus, or maybe you even thought that at some point in your your past, you had put your faith in Jesus, but this morning you're realizing, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, I've certainly never done that. But this morning you want his forgiveness, and you want a relationship with God, and you want to make that decision to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity as we close in prayer. So would you all bow your heads and pray with me now? Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful that you love us enough to tell us the truth. Yes, a relationship with you does produce ultimate happiness. It produces eternal joy in your presence. And it would be easy and tempting as Christians for us to share just that with people. But Lord, we're so thankful that you're truthful with us. And you want us to know that the road, the the journey toward Eternal life is oftentimes a difficult one because we live in a world where sin still abounds. We live in a world where we have temptations in our own lives to do the wrong things and you call us to resist those things. And we live in a world where other people sin against us and hurt us and we live in a world where things are not the way that they ought to be. And so to live life like you've called us can be challenging. But it's so worth it. And so we thank you, Jesus, that through your life and your death on the cross and your resurrection from the grave, you've made forgiveness possible and you've made true life in you possible. And we pray you'd help us to live lives now that are pleasing to you. But Lord, I also want to pray for anyone here this morning who has never put their faith in you, Jesus, that today that would change, that today they would put their faith in you and receive you as Lord and have their sins forgiven, have their guilt removed, and have the very life of God living in them from this day forward. Give them the faith to do that. And while we're praying now and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if that describes you, if you want to put your faith in Jesus today and commit your life to Him and receive Him as your Lord and Master, I would invite you now in the quietness of your heart and in this room to pray this prayer after me. And it's a simple prayer of faith. It's not magical. The prayer isn't magical. But if there's truly faith in your heart as you're repeating these words and these words become your own and you believe them, guess what, friend? God hears them. He will forgive you and he will give you new life. And so if you want that today, pray this prayer after me. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for rising again from the grave. And thank you for offering me eternal life. Today I choose to follow you. I choose to put you first in my life. And I pray that you would empower me and strengthen me 
to do that from this day forward. That you would help this church to assist me on that journey. I love you. I thank you that you love me. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. And Lord, again, we commit ourselves to you this morning and ask that you would be glorified through us in Christ's name. Amen.